All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. Yo, 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 what's up, y'all? This is Fonte, Fontiglo, and this is yet another QLS classic with Otis Williams from The Legendary Temptations. This one was from June 13, 2018. One of the few episodes I had to miss. I hate I had to miss this one. This really hurt my heart. Uh, legendary baritone singer, founding member of The Temptations, Otis Williams. He discusses everything from his evolution of Motown, the band's dynasty, and their album all the time. It's going down right here on QLS Classics, right here on Quest of Supreme. All right? Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove Jenkins, and uh, with me today is Boss Bill, Sugar Steve, and it's Laia, Team Supreme. Uh, today we are celebrating a legacy for the past six decades. Our next guest was the glue that held together one of the most tightest, elegant music dynasties in the history of modern Western music. Uh, their brand of sophisticated pop and soul with such gems as My Girl, The Way You Do the Things You Do, and Ain't Too Proud to Big, just to name a few, uh, was just as crucial to the civil rights era as Lift Every Voice and Sing. Uh, there isn't a vocal group or band active today or in the past who has not been influenced by them. From their immaculate vocal harmony structure to their choreography to their outfits to their songs of love that have stood the test of time to their political anthems just as relevant in 2018 as it was in 1968. Music would not be what it is today without the temptations, and the temptations would not be the everlasting institution it is without the one and only heartbeat of the temptations. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Sir Otis Williams. Yes. Thank you. 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 Th
you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Worthy of this praise. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I should become a preacher. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you rattle that off real good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I'm going I'm to do something a little different than I normally do on the show. Um, well, I want to ask you, normally I want to I, I go back to the beginning, but I want to ask you, what keeps you going? Well, Quest, on the real side, it's love for what I do. You know, when you stop and think about this world that we live in and all the people that inhabit this world, there's a small microcosm of us that get a, that get a chance to do what we'd like to do for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, and God has blessed me to be able to ride the hair off the horse. So I'm enjoying this here. You know, it's a labor of love. And when you can bring happiness to the world over in by way of music, you know, uh, music have been able to do some things that uh, politicians haven't been able to do. Mm-hmm. So I love what I do. And I'm thankful to God for, you know, still being able to do it after 58 years. Yeah, that, that's impressive. And as as someone that's at the epicenter of of a group of people uh and and not controlling them per se but i know the headaches the daily headaches that it takes to manage uh different band uh uh-huh. Attitudes sure. and, and mm-hmm. whatever, I mean, be it, be it. Uh, yeah, you trying to li- put it nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Politically correct. But, yeah, right. I'm just saying that, like, so I mean? I admire you so much, and you know, I, I've read I've read your book when when I was like 17. Your 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 autobiography that came out, and sure. like, like I know that being the glue of an institution is one of the hardest things. Like, where you wake up daily or weekly mm-hmm. trying to figure out. Yeah. What ops can I get through this day without sure, yeah drama and you know I know that you've gone through like members of the group and sure. yeah arguments like yeah all that is it is it worth it that that's really my 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 question is it worth it that well you know the what day to you? look I look at it first of all you're dealing with people when you understand that you're dealing with people then you have to really understand that uh, a lot of uh, you know things come along with that and uh, it's worth it you know because. When we're on stage and we hear and see people with tears in their eyes, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about ladies, I'm talking about grown men, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we were on a, uh, one night a few weeks ago, and my road manager said, Doogie, his name is Doogie, we call him Doogie, he said, Otis, you have got to see this little three-year-old boy playing with his car, and he's like, dee doo dee da doo dee doo doo da He's three years old. So when you see from three years old all the way up to almost 100, mm-hmm. it's worth it. You know, you just have to put up with, uh, uh, you know, the shenanigans and the moods and the what have you with people. You know, but uh, God has helped me to make it through this. And Barry Gordy and a lot of the uh, heavyweights at Motown and thereabouts have said, Otis, you are the glue that holds the temptation together. And I figured that day, if my shoulders are big enough and strong enough to do it, then it's well worth the wait. Because when I'm at home, and I walk around my house and look at of all uh, of all the things that I've achieved. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's worth it, you know. Uh, it would be like me crying with a loaf of bread under my arms. So I really can't complain. Okay, I gotta I gotta take that into account. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you would, Steve. So in the, in, the, in, the, in the days of uh, the Elgins, before you uh, became the Temptations, first of all, how did you guys? What was the transformation from the Elgins to the Temptations? Well, even before the Elgins, um, 
my group was called Otis Williams in the Distance. Mm-hmm. And we were with a little small label called uh, Northern Records, and the lady that ran the label, Johnny Mae Matthews, uh, she recorded us, and we had a nice little regional hit called Come On, mm-hmm. and it did very well, so much so that she uh, sold the masters to Warwick Records. And uh, so one day she came from New York back to Detroit, and she just taking out all these $100, you know, slapping them in these $100 bills. And I was about this, I'm about 17, 18 years old, and she said, well, you guys, your record's going to be here all over America. I sold it to Warwick Records, and now they can hear it all over the world. And I said, oh, that's good. Uh, do we get some royalties for that? Because I wrote the first uh, little regional hit. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me with a jaunty's eye, and she said, you ain't going to get none of this money. This is my money. Now, we were doing record hops back during those days, and record hops is where you go around to the disc jockeys, uh, uh, record hops, and so they can continue to play your records. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Smokey, and Rob- uh, Smokey, Miracle- uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles were very hot at the time, and Mr. Gordy was with them. So, we could see them from the stage, and as they were coming in, we came off, and Mr. Gordy said, I like your group, your record. If you should leave where you are, come see me. And I did, you know, because Johnny May had said we weren't going to get any of that money. Mm-hmm. So I called Mr. Gordy, and he said, uh, come on over here and uh, see Mickey Stevens. It was the A&R man. So Johnny May kept the name, that uh, Otis Williams, in the distance. So I guess being young and whatever, I said, well, keep the name. We're young. We'll start all over again. So when we got over to uh, uh, Motown, we stood out front of a building called uh, the uh, legal department of Motown. Mm-hmm. And a guy named was Bill Mitchell. He said, so what are we going to call you guys? And we stood there and we stood there. He said, what about the temptation? I said, I like that. And at the time, David Ruffin wasn't in the group, but Al Bryan, mm-hmm. Eddie Kendricks, Paul Williams, and Melvin Franklin, myself, uh, we were the no-name group at the time. So I said, I like that. And I asked Paul, I'd rather I asked all the guys, but Paul Williams said, Otis, a name is whatever we make it. So I said, Temptations. So Bill hollered back up uh, to legal department, put on the contract at the Temptations. And so 1961, all the way up till now, uh, we have been known as the Temptations. The movie totally got that wrong. They over-dramatized <laughs> that whole thing. They said y'all was sitting outside for like eight hours trying to figure out outside of Hitsville. Yeah, we got to, <laughs> And yeah. then you come in, uh-huh. and then Mr. Gordy says, well, what's your name? Because I can't have y'all be whatever y'all said y'all was. And, right, right. And y'all were like, we got to make it sexy. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they will dramatize well, that whole know, thing. Well, you know what I learned when I say, because I'm being honest with you, uh, I have yet to sit and watch that miniseries. Mm. What? Seriously? Right wow. here I think wow. I understand that, but... I can tell it's you weird why. because now they just they show it so much. Oh yeah. Well, well, what I learned the little bit that I saw, the scene where as Melvin Franklin and myself had to go to David Ruffin's apartment. Now the guy that played me, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, what is his name, Charles Malik, mm-hmm. DB Woodside, who played Melvin and naturally Leon. Mm-hmm. So I'm standing in the shadows and the way they're getting the lighting and everything all fixed up. So Alan Arkis, the director, said, "All right, action, camera, roll them." The girl came up with the class book. Bap. And the two brothers that played Melvin and myself knocked on the door, and Leon opened the door. And when they started to del- uh, deliver their lines, I said, oh, no, I can't watch this. Now, we're talking about the year 1998, but when that incident happened, it was 1966. Mm-hmm. So it lets you know that there was still a lot of stuff down underneath. So one day we were in New York where my players were getting ready to open up. I mean, in D- uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. And Smokey mm-hmm. heard that I hadn't seen the movie. Uh, he said... He calls me Oak. Oak? You mean you haven't seen your movie? I said, no, Smokey, I don't want to cry. Oak, <laughs> you need to watch your movie. I said, well, I'll get around to watch it. 
I said, well, let me ask you something, Smoker. Have you watched it? Oh, I watch it. I said, did you cry? Yeah, I cried. <laughs> so you need to get you a box of Kleenex and yeah. sit down and watch <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, I have yet to watch it. But when I saw it up in Berkeley, I sat there and the move, I mean, the play is very touching. It's going to be seen that you need to take a Kleenex. So wait, what's the difference? Because there's an actual, there's, there's a, play a play versus the, show, versus the miniseries that we saw. Well, the play is very touching yeah. in the sense of you get another kind of feel in person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as I'm sitting there watching it, the people that's sitting around me, they would watch the play and they would do like this here. Get a glance at you. <laughs> yeah, they want to see if I'm crying. And, and true enough, tears welling up in my eyes because there's a scene where it's, uh, uh, the white folks are shooting at us down south. And, uh, oh, yeah, no, we went through all that. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it's been very real. But, you know, I, I'm very glad that, uh, you know, I was able to put it in paper. Now from that to it'll start next month in D.C. And uh, it'll be there for five weeks and then it'll go to L.A. And then from L.A., uh, to uh, Toronto, and then hopefully, hopefully they have Broadway. They're just waiting for the right theater, yeah. and the name of it is "Ain't Too Proud: The Life and Times of the Temptations." Yeah, uh, I got to meet the the people that produced that. Uh, Ira Oaken. I mean, Ira uh, the, Pillman. Well, the sister that wrote the uh, the screenplay. Oh yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. The Detroit girl. She's yeah. It's 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 amazing. And do you yeah. at least do like have to anything to do with the casting, either the miniseries or the play, for the person who plays you? Do you care? Do you uh, uh, Well, at first I wanted Leon to play me because Leon and I were pretty close. You know, when we got the green light that it was going to be done on NBC, I told us, hey, man, they're going to do the Tim's Life story. Uh, I would love for you to play me. He said, oh, oh, this man, you know, you my man. I'd be glad to play you. So the Tim's, we went to Paris to do a one-nighter. Mm-hmm. So by the time we came back from Paris, uh, my manager, Shelly, said, well, got the green light. Uh, we're going to do it. And uh, um, But I got to tell you good news and bad news. I said, okay, what's that? I said, he said, well, Leon is going to be in the miniseries. I said, oh, good. So what's the bad news? He's going to play David Ruffin. <laughs> <laughs> what David, I mean, what Leon did while we were over in Paris, Leon went and got the pants that we used to wear back then called the Continental Type uh, all the way down. He went and got his hair, you know, like David used to wear in the glasses. Wow. Yeah, and he, when he walked into the casting with all the powers to be that was sitting there, uh, Suzanne, the passing him, said, you play David Ruffin. And that's how he got the role. It's weird that you haven't seen it because one of the most iconic lines from it uh-huh. <laughs> that's become an internet meme yeah. is, uh-huh. nobody's coming to see you. Yeah, no, I've been getting that question <laughs> everywhere. I yeah, but I said, yeah, but look at me now, though. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah. So when when you guys um, started at Motown, um, Explain to our listeners the idea of the charm school. Um, oh wow! Going through well, first of all, just the idea of what was the idea behind wanting to present that and and a sophisticated sure look to America as a what was it before and why was that such a revolutionary move? Well, I, I think you know talent a lot of times need to be cultivated. You know, you can have all the talent in the world, but it's one thing to know how to present yourself when you are, uh, you know, really out on the front street. And I have to give those accolades to, uh, a lot of people say Barry Gordon. No, I have to give a credit to Harvey Fuqua. Harvey Fuqua was from the Moonglows, and he knew Charlie Atkins. And so in the process of Motown really becoming the iconic label it is known for today, evidently uh, Harvey must have met with 
Barry and said, you know, we need to groom these uh, talented kids. And so uh, Barry felt as though it would be a good idea. And they opened up an artist development right across the street from uh, Hitsville. We had to be there when uh, it was time for us to rehearse from 10 in the morning to 5 to 6 o'clock in the evening. And it was headed by the late, great Charlie Atkins, uh, the late, great Maurice King, who was our vocal coach, and Charlie was our choreographer. Johnny Allen, who would be at the piano and, you know, giving it everything, uh, you know, uh, theoretically, musically uh, correct. And uh, they sat down and they would tell us how to really carry ourselves. You know, it's one thing to have all the talent in the world, but if there's one thing I hate, and I'm always trying to be cognizant of it, I hate for artists to get on, uh, you know, do interviews. Well, them, they'll do dudes and, you know, don't talk correctly. They said, you, you guys need to know how to talk, you know, because the world will be watching you. And um, they told us things like, uh, four things Maurice King said, don't get involved with. You can never tell nobody about how they spend their money, religion, uh, who they make love to, and it's the fourth when I politics. Did I say politics? Mm-mm. That. So, and we've had that occasion to come up, and I'm so glad that I had that kind of knowledge being taught at Motown. You know, so, but they really, uh, you know, put a lot into us because they were grooming us to go come to the Copacabana and the smart rooms. So we would have to rehearse uh, from ten in the morning to six in the evening, and it paid off because, uh, you know, I look at a lot of the early films and. Uh, I can see where the proper presentation and how to carry ourselves and how to present ourselves in the sense of speaking, interviews, and what have you. So it, it is one of the only company I believe, that, will, that ever had that. There will never, ever be another Motown. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. 
So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. So, would you guys? I know that uh, at least in the '60s, to play the copa right. was like the dream. Yes. Um, but similar to how Sam Cooke would do it, like if you were playing the black venue, then he did the sure. show enough get down. Yeah, right. You know, sweat off my brow. Right, right, right. Rebel rousing show. But right. if at the copa, then suit and tie. So would would you guys have dual shows depending on who the audience was? No. So oh, cool. even Mellow Mood Temptations would play the Apollo to that particular when, crowd? After and... we open up at the uh, the Copa Cups, we hold all the existing records at the Copa. Mm-hmm. We went to the Apollo, and we opened up with Holo Young Lovers. And really? Loved, yes. And it worked? Uh, psh, fat Me Greasy, <laughs> yes. Fat <laughs> 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 Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it, it was almost like a job. Well, I, I saw Michael Jackson's ID card. So you guys would have to have these ID cards at Motown or at, or at Hitsville. Not really. So they, so it wasn't. They like, gave them out, but you know, I mean, you losing them. Yeah, and then we they knew who we were. You know, if we wanted to walk through whatever part department, the, hey, what's happening? Orders of temp, y'all back in town? You know, so it would never was no real. Big oh, thing. so it wasn't like who you brought? Uh, yeah, right. So, so how many hours a day? Would you guys uh, rehearse? Rehearse, and how how did Charlie find that much time to devote to each of the acts? Because he was he literally was doing everyone from the sixties and the seventies. Yeah, and coming up with these ideas. Like, what was his creative process to? You know, I tell you, when I first uh, became aware of Charlie's uh, choreography, the Cadillacs in Detroit. We were they came to Detroit. Man, now, you know, Radio City is the largest indoor theater in America. Fox Theater in Detroit is the second. Okay. To see 5,000 people going crazy over what five guys are doing on the stage. And I said, that's what I want to do. Now, I was about 16 years old. Mm-hmm. So one day I met one of the Cadillacs outside of the Fox, and I asked him, how did they do all that? Who taught him that? And he said, well, young brother, you know, if you should ever want to do what we're doing, look for a young man named Charlie Atkins. 1964, we were at the Howard Theater with Gladys Knight and a big act, uh, a run out of acts. And Charlie was there. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's Charlie Atkins. And I sat and talked with him, and he showed me. I still remember the first move. He said, if I had you guys on the way you do the things you do, I'd show you what I would do. And he got up and did move and opened his arms. And I said, man, but Paul Williams was our choreographer of the Thames. But they would work it out systematically, you know, for the hours. They would have, like, uh, 
I attempt you all would have from like uh, one o'clock to four. And then from four to five, the Supremes would come in, you know. So they had it systematically worked out where he would give uh, all the acts that needed to come into Motown for that uh, a certain amount of time to do it. But we had to be there damn near every day. I mean, it was like being in school. And so it worked? Okay. Oh, yeah, it worked. Mm-hmm. So touring um, with the with the Hitsville Review, mm-hmm. um, describe to our listeners uh, the difference between uh, – Below the Mason-Dixon line, touring down south, as opposed to doing a show in Los Angeles, or or was it the same? Just no, every- no, no, it was different. Down south. So did you dread? Did you guys dread going down south? Not really, because we knew we had fans that wanted to see us because our record was breaking out all over the uh, you know America. But you can feel the, uh, a different kind of wind uh, chill factor when you got down in certain parts of the south, like. Uh, I'm from Texas, and so we were on a, a Henry Wynn tour, who was uh, the owner of uh, the Raw Peacock in Atlanta, Georgia, so he would always have these big rock and roll shows. So we got off the bus uh, in Texas, and we wanted to eat, get something to eat. And when we walked into this restaurant, white guy said, oh, we don't serve, and he used the N-word. And we said, we don't eat them. We had to find a place that we could go and, uh, you know, that would feed us, you know. And so did you guys use that travel guide? I, the green I've seen book? A, yeah, what the green book? Yeah, the green book. The travel guide that lets black artists and black travelers down south know what restaurants are safe oh, or wow. what. No, we never did. We just, it was a different kind of network, you know, because we would find out where to go. There were people that, like Sam said in his book, uh, that would house us as black artists, you know, because a lot of hotels uh, wouldn't take us, you know, because we were black. So there were certain homes and places down there that would, uh, you know, let us stay and feed us and what have you. And plus, you had, you also had white people on the bus as well. So if it was a case of getting a to-go order of 23 dishes without you guys having to go in, like... Not on our bus. It was really? all blackness. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yikes. Yeah. Damn. That's what we were saying. Mm-hmm. Y'all needed a guide or something. Yeah. Well, we had the best guide in the world. God. You know, Amen. He, he brought us right. through all that. What was the What was the city? The one city or state that you dreaded going to, at least in that period, in the in the mid sixties, early sixties. Wow. Well, I hope I don't get in trouble, but, uh, but Mississippi was the one. Mm, Mississippi goddamn. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that was her, y'all, mm-hmm. not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, we were in Columbia, South Carolina, 1964, and uh, the place was rocking. They had a rope right down the center of the auditorium. Right. Blacks on one side, whites on the other. So we were singing and saying, oh, man, this show ain't cool, you know. So, okay, we came back, same venue, same city, next year, that next year. There was no rope. Black and white, sitting side by side, booty banging, <laughs> high-fiving, and having fun. Wow. If it wasn't for the sweat that we were sweating, you would have seen five guys on stage crying. The power of music. Were yeah. y'all then after, so after that moment because they showed that in the in the series too? But after that moment, did it change uh, in the sense of groupies as well? Because it was it now safe to have like groupies of all colors? Like, did you see the difference in that? Ah, uh, well, the groupies back then. <laughs> I mean, how did that work? Like when the uh, uh, 
you have to be very cautious cautious of okay. how you do that. You know, uh, we always pretty much stayed within our color line. You know, because uh, uh, we knew how if you did that. Like Chuck Berry said, he did that. His mm-hmm. behind got no. We wasn't getting in there. Right. No, 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 no. Uh, I am not going to the Gray Bar Hotel. You know, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Gray Bar, damn, you got some stuff, Otis. I love yeah, it. Oh, I love it. I've been told you, Otis, you should do an Otisism because that's the way my ear done. <laughs> Oh, excuse me. What a hell of a ring. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Shelly, I'll call you back. It's my manager. I'll call you back, Chell. Shelly's still in man. Yeah. Okay, yeah. See you later, gone. See you later, gone. I'm taking, I gotta write all this shit down. Shelly's been the Temptations manager since the beginning, correct? 1966. Woo. That's loyal. That's amazing. Oh. Yeah, he's getting ready to be 80 years old. Come. And still going strong, still sharp, and still. Yeah, yeah, he'll be uh, at the play. He's coming here because the stage temptations, they are already rehearsing now. Okay. And I just talked with a couple of them. So he's coming in to sit and watch that and make sure everything is going correct. It's amazing. So when you, when you guys uh, got to the late 60s and was easing into your psychedelic phase. Sure. Um, I guess it starts with the Cloud Nine record. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the, the the addition of, is that when Dennis made his debut with the group? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cloud Nine came about um, Gambling Huff, who was a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and I were talking, Warwick Hotel, right up the road. So as him and I were talking, uh, we heard this boom, 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 doo, 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 doo. so it stopped. We stopped and said, uh, who in the hell is that, you know, with that, because it was so different. Mm-hmm. So we listened. And the guy said, that was Sly and the Family Stone. So went back to Detroit. Now, Norman Whitfield had recorded Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Please Return Your Love, I Wish It Would Rain. So we were doing the ballads and what have you. So when we came back to Detroit, Norman and I, we grew up together because he played tamarine on my first hit with John May Matthews. So I asked uh, Norman, I said, Norman, have you heard this group called Sly and the Family Stone? And Norman was very cocky. No, nah, man, I ain't heard no damn uh, slide stone. <laughs> I said, well, you should check them out, man, because they're doing something that we should probably uh, check out because we were letting uh, David go at the time. Mm-hmm. So Norman, no, 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 no. You know, he did all that wolfing and ghetto. So we went out of town, came back in. He had recorded the track to Cloud Nine. I said, oh, all right. He used the N-word on me. Let's go in here and record this here. <laughs> and we went in and recorded. Now, we were spoiled because most cases when we would record any of our records, like the way you do the things you do, my girl and whatever, or it just run up the charts, just crawl from R&B right on to pop. Mm-hmm. So when they released Cloud Nine, uh, it was spooky, you know, because we had gotten so used to having hits jump right on the charts right away. So about a week and a half, two weeks, Almost three weeks. I said, "Oh my so God!" Yeah, yeah, I said, "Oh damn, we we dropped on this one." Motown called. He said, "Well, it finally took off, you know." And I guess our fans were saying, "What the hell did the Temptations do? This is so different because we were just coming off a hit of Please Return Your Love." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so it really, you know, skyrocketed, and um, we got the first Grammy. Uh, for the Timps and Motown, and that was 1968, and that was Dennis's first big hit uh, with the Timps. Time out. Yes. Motown's first Grammy in 1968? Yes, sir. Yeah. They weren't, yeah. the Grammys weren't that 
I mean, the number one record. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to I mean, this, this is what you got to figure. Like, excuse Steve, me, that's all right. <laughs> Steve, kiss old. You, you got to figure out like records like South Pacific and the Mind of Bob Newhart was like number, like those records were number one in the sixties. Like sorry. the Beatles, <laughs> the Beatles don't have a Grammy. Yeah, I don't think they do. Yeah, the Beatles don't. Have a Grammy. Wow. So it's it's just like. Yeah, early 70s when like yeah, semi-inclusive all right, yeah all right. you know yeah, yeah but yeah that's that's that is crazy to, to to know that but with okay i'm glad you brought that up because i always wanted to know one were you guys even aware or at least norman i think it was more to norman and less to you guys but were you guys even aware of sly stone's kind of casual flip off on hot fun in the summertime to you guys oh uh, somewhat yeah like what did you guys do you guys know the story behind no, it I, I, I'm... okay so uh rose's parts of hot fun in the summertime yeah was basically sly like all right we invented the the breakdown uh, the boo-boo breakdown and you know like just bucking a little shot i never knew that but it yeah, was aimed at norman Whitfield. But did he did he ever respond? Did he ever meet Sly or do you know? Not that I know of. I don't know if he ever met uh Sly because um no, I, I don't he never mentioned it to me. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I've always been curious about that cuz I think Sly like finally revealed it like maybe 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. That. But uh as far as uh Norman Whitfield's productions um and the, the 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 heavy militancy uh militant message of the group um far away from wanting to be at the copa and you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how did you guys manage to convince Barry Gordy that that's the direction of the group like a song like uh run charlie run which <laughs> speaks of white flight in the most explicit terms possible <laughs> like how how was how did Barry take that you know what, Quest? We were having so many hit records with uh, Norman mm-hmm. that when we made the transition from the ballads and you know straight up R and B, and went to Cloud Nine, uh, Norman told me one day he said, "You know, uh, Otis Barry them don't even bother us anymore about uh, quality control because every Friday they would have what uh, they call uh, quality control. Everything that was recorded during the week, they would sit down at the end of the week." And uh, listen at it and say, yeah, yeah, what? Hey, man, I think this needs to be a little more heavy bass. And not too much this, too much of that. You know, they would do all that kind of critiquing. And uh, so uh, Norman would be part of that. You know, he would be in there because he was one of the producers. But, you know, we were having so many hit records with uh, Norman and uh, that they didn't ever bother us about whatever we would come up with. Because when Norman came up with that song, Run, Charlie, Run, huh, the niggas are coming. I said, oh, Norman, you got to be kidding. <laughs> 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 yeah, but that was Norman. He was uh, that kind of a uh, creative person outside of the box. Were you guys at all confused about his, like I know that he was trying to, as a producer, <clears throat> um, present the cinematic scope of you know have a lot of uh, drama in his music mm. so songs like masterpiece will let six seven minutes go by before the vocals even start <laughs> yeah which which is unprecedented i yeah. mean now it's standard standard but right. back then it was like 
You know? I didn't even know that Masterpiece had lyrics in it. Like, I just assumed that the whole thing was an instrumental. I'll tell you something, Quest. It's very interesting that you should uh, bring that up because that was the song that made me say, oh, we got to leave Norman. When we were over <laughs> in Austria, I'm in um, Belgium. Mm-hmm. So they sent me a breakdown of what was happening. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the article said that Norman Whitfield singers. We Wait, all of us. What? <laughs> wow. Wait. Uh-oh. The Norman Whitfield singers. And it was about Masterpiece. Boy, I mean, I was so damn mad. I called and said, What? So when we got back to Detroit, I told uh, Barry, I said, We got to let Norman go. Because when you listen at Masterpiece, it's just only a little small segment of us singing. And everything else was all this beautiful, elongated strings, horns, and doom, 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 all that. And no, Mary said, yes, yeah, you're right, because we had such a great run with um, Norman. But, uh, you know, when they started calling us the Norman Whitfield Singers, I said, no, no, we didn't work all these years this hard to lose our, our identity. identity. Yeah, just that quick. And But that's the song that made me call and say, we got to go, and Barry... Uh, there again was always there for Melvin and myself and that was the song that was the uh, changing thing for us leaving Norman after about eight or nine years of being with Norman but what was his theory for making these songs 13, 14 minutes long well Norman was you know he was very innovative he always wanted to be different from Smokey and uh, Holland Doja Holland and uh, uh, Astrid and Simpson Mm -hmm. so he definitely always kind of after Please Return Your Love and when we ventured over to uh, Cloud Nine, he always started to think out of the box. So, like I said, the Run Charlie Run <clears throat> and uh, uh, the Cloud Nines and the um, Message from a Black Man, that was just his way of expressing himself of wanting to be different. And uh, he just uh, started thinking that way. And he, we could not get him to come back to the Sweet Ballads. The only way we got him to do just uh, my uh, just my imagination was well, I said, Norman, we out there. We hear what our, fam- our fans want us to do. You got to come on and get off that side. Yeah, 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 man. You know, to know Norman, very cocky, very egotistical. Wonderful friend of mine, but you have to know how to deal with Norman. So he recorded Just My Imagination, and that was the last record Eddie Kendricks did with us. And I saw, uh, saw us on Ed Sullivan, and we were singing Just My Imagination. And I looked at that and I said, boy, I wonder if the world can look at uh, our face and say, those guys don't look to be too happy. Oh, next time you see it, because uh, they showed it the other night, and we're sitting there singing on little blocks and, you know, looking just straight ahead, no emotion other than sadness. And uh, But, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes when you're dealing with very uh, talented people. I was asked... How so, hard was it to, to lose Eddie Kendricks as a singer? Because his... I mean, with at least with uh, uh, Dennis. Right. And, and his raspy baritone mm-hmm. I mean, that fit in, but Eddie's falsetto is such a smooth. Oh light. yeah, yeah. Was it hard to lose? And uh, yeah, it was. It was rough to lose uh, Eddie because he was such a such a talent, you know, for singing. And um, he's been no- <clears throat> excuse me noted as one of the best tenors group wise. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the business, you know. But uh, I'm often asked about Otis when you need to find somebody. What do you look for? I look for I don't look for talent first. So see, that's the look I always would get. <laughs> and I say, you don't yeah. what Otis? Uh, I look for head and heart. 
You can have all the talent in the world. Excuse me. If you're an asshole of a person, you're going to negate yeah. the talent. True. And that's it. I can vouch for that, actually, personally. <laughs> I, I actually have all the talent in the world. <laughs> but being an asshole has totally ruined it for me. It's, just, it's unfortunate, but I'm an accurate. Well, how, when, you, when you, first of all, um, how, how are the, the, the exits and injuries? I mean, I'm sure everyone in their mind would like to think, like, everything was amicable. Nope. And, you know, guys, I, I just, no, no. give my one-month notice. Like how 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 are are they executed, and how fast do you have to find like what was the network like? At least with the internet, I can go on and search and search. Sure, oh, yeah. I got a drummer instantly. Yeah, but no, it wasn't like uh, like that uh, for us. We were at the Copa, and at the time, Paul Williams, Dennis Edwards, Melvin Franklin, myself, and Eddie. Mm-hmm. Eddie and myself got into an argument, so we were doing two shows at the Copa. And we stayed right around the corner of uh, the Sherry Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went back to the hotel until uh, it was time to come back to do the second show. We ended up doing the show with four. Eddie just said, kiss the monkey on the ball spot. I'm gone. And we had to do the show at the Copa with four. So it was no, fellas, uh, after the show, I'm going to leave. Eddie said, yeah, I had to deal with that kind of stuff. Oh, I mean, I can go down in my home. That is a friend of mine that did a beautiful portrait of 22 different members. Uh, I got to ask Renee to do a new one. Oh, yeah, nice 24. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. And I was standing in my living room and look from Al all the way up until uh, to now. But I got to add Willie and uh, Larry because they would be, yeah. Was there ever a moment where you were like, okay, just, I can't lose Melvin. Like, was there a person, like, I just can't lose Melvin or I just can't lose, it Mm -hmm. just, we, Yeah, well, I didn't want to lose Melvin. Well, right, because in my mind, I'm like, who replaces Melvin? Yeah, yeah, well, I, Well, you got lucky with Ray Davis. Like, if (laughs) someone had to replace Melvin. Right. When I found out that Ray Davis was right. his replacement, I was yeah. like, oh, my God. That's yeah. that's like, because he always wanted to be a temptation. That's true. That's you know true. what I mean? Yeah. So the fact that you got him. Yeah. he It was a short-lived thing with Ray because he did For Lovers Only. All right. Just one project, right? Uh-huh. And I would always send whomever would join the group to the doctor. We said, you have to be checked out because we have been told that we are athletes that just sing. You know, because right. there are times we're on stage, we have to be on stage for an hour and a half. Mm. You know, doing all that stuff, right. you better be in good shape. So uh, Ray went to uh, our doctor. So I always go and get my annual physical for what we do. So Dr. Hagar said, well, listen, I got some bad news to tell you. You need to look for another bass singer. I said, really, Doc? He said, he's not going to be here too long. Oh, man. Cancer. And now Ray didn't smoke. He didn't smoke. And true enough, we had to let him go because of health reasons. Wow. Yeah. But the guy that we have now, Willie Green, uh, you know, uh, people said, you, you oldest have found someone almost the equivalent of Melvin Franklin. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Willie is a cold piece of work. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. 
make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You mentioned... You know, this whole thing is physical. You have to go to the doctors. How do you, Otis, preserve your knees? I mean, y'all performed on hard bottom shoes yes, for decades. Yeah. Well, this year, right knee now. Uh, I've had surgery on both knees, mm. you know, from years of dancing, you know, and then rehearsing, you know. Cause can you wear sneakers now? No, you're still going yeah. through the hard bottoms? Yeah, yeah, I can wear pretty much. only thing that bothers is, like, going up and coming downstairs. Wow. But other than that, when it's time to hit the stage, mm-hmm. phew, Kiss the monkey on the balls, but I'm there. <laughs> so that, that's the ass, right? Yes, yes, yes. Just checking. Just checking. Wait, um, speaking of stage, yeah. who invented the Temptations microphone stand? You know what? I have to give credit to David Ruffin. When they were rehearsing us for the Copacabana, you know, Charlie Atkins, Non Fontaine, mm-hmm. um, so we were around rehearsing, and we had a moment just to sit and kick it. So David said, man, you know, if we really wanted to be different, you know what we should do? We should get a microphone that with four heads on it, and we can stand around it. And so we just, you know, kibbishing and whatever. And uh, Lon Fontaine, who was uh, helping us uh, do our choreography, uh, he said, oh, I know somebody can do that. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, we drew up a thing with the pole and the four-headed mic. Lon knew somebody at the Star Trek back then. Somebody connected with Star Trek. Wow. Fixed their microphone up for us. And I gave it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 1991. And really? The, the reason we stopped using it because it was unique for us moving right there in that spot, but we wanted to open up. We couldn't open up because the mic was just right there. And, right. You know, so after a while, we said, man, the mic is great. And it has worn off its novelty and what have you. So uh, we stopped using it and wanted to be spread out more on stage. I always wanted to know, uh, <clears throat> when I was 20-something, I had, I had a particular um, light stand 
that was sort of like a boom mic that had two uh, lights on it. Right. But it would always fall over. Uh-huh. And I always wondered how sturdy that microphone stand was. Like, if you if one guy were to adjust it and throw off the balance of it, no. has that microphone stand ever fallen over it? No. Ever on no. Sturdy? The people did a great job of balancing it out with the four hits on it, and they hit the, the support system on the each mic that if I should move mine, it wouldn't tilt the others. He said so. Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, say, that's that's uh yeah <laughs> that's uh yeah okay yeah so it must be sturdy yeah it was um I know that in the the mid seventies um kind of a little bit after the the song for you house party era era um you guys went to Atlantic mm-hmm. Well, I have Bear back. I forget the album before it, but Rebid, uh, uh, what was the first album with Atlantic? Look, um, oh, yeah. but my question is, uh, how hard was it to leave Motown? Leave an institution like Motown, and I know that you know the Four Tops went to ABC for a second, and some art, you know, the Jacksons went to CBS. Sure. So everyone was sort of making it. I'll tell you something that's very, and they didn't show this in the movie. We still had time on our contract. Mm-hmm. You know, Barry said he got tired of running Motown on a day-to-day basis. It was beginning to wham down. Mm-hmm. So he started uh, hiring, like, Abner, who used to be with VJ Records. Mm-hmm. Then Abner uh, left, and he had this guy named Barney Ellis okay. that was running it. So we had a meeting. Uh with um, Barney Ellis, uh, Ralph Seltzer, the <clears throat> uh, attorney, Shelley, Suzanne DePaz, and the Temps. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Ellis, I guess he was pissed off because we had the Jackson and us had the same attorney, Abe Summers, a noted entertainment attorney, and he had engineered a hell of a contract for the Jacksons to sign with Epic. Mm-hmm. And so when we had the meeting with uh, Mr. Ellis, it was a windshield fact in the room. So uh, he said, took his fist, bam! Sooner y'all get rid of Mr. Summers, the better things to be for you guys around here. The room went hush. I said, say what? Sooner you get rid of Mr. Summers, things will be a lot better for you guys around here. I said, Oh, no, we're not getting rid of our attorneys because you guys got somebody, people around here that we don't like, but I bet you won't find them <laughs> because we don't like them. So he pointed down at the end of the table to Ralph Seltzer. He said, if Abe Summers call, don't you answer his call. I said, oh, Suzanne sat there, Shelley sat there, um, the group. So I said, well, I guess that's the end of the meeting. So we left. Marvin Gaye had to come in and have the same meeting with this guy. Susie Iketa, who was our project manager, she called me. She said, Otis, Marvin just left the meeting crying. I said, well, why do Barry have this guy running his acts off like this? So Barry was in La Costa on vacation. And he called me and he said, Otis, I am so sorry that that went down. Uh... What can we do to rectify it? I said, we want to leave, Barry. Silence on the phone. He said, well, 
what kind of money can we get? I said, it's not about money. It's about respect now. We don't want to be here. So he was very sad to hear that. He said, all right, I'll work it out and we'll, we'll get past this. And they worked it out. We left Motown and signed with, uh, uh, we almost signed with CBS, but it was predicated on Gamble and Huff presenting, uh, producing us. But Really? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Now, well, Kenny and I go back during the early 60s. That could have been something. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, because CBS was getting ready to get up off a ton of money for us. Mm-hmm. You know, but Kenny told me, he said, oh, this after I do the Jacksons, because he did uh, the Jacksons, Enjoy Yourself. Mm-hmm. He said, no, I want to concentrate on my own act. He said, you know, you know I've always wanted to <clears throat> produce the Timps, but uh, I'm just going to concentrate on my acts. And I said, I'll be damned. I said, well, Kenny, I can't argue with you because if, if this is what you want to do, you know, you got to do what you have to do. And so um, Jerry Greenberg, who was the president of Atlantic Records, made a, a wonderful offer. And so Abe Summers worked it out, and so we went to Atlantic Records. But that's how we— So you guys didn't mess with Ahmet Erdogan at all? Like, I mean, was he— Oh, well, yeah, he, 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 you know, was glad to— he was a, yeah, Okay, so yeah. it wasn't hands-on and— Yeah, yeah, he, oh, yeah, he really wanted us there, but Jerry Greenberg was the president of Atlantic at the time. So you're saying the leadership of Motown in the mid-'70s sort of caused sourness amongst— Oh, yeah, yeah. Truth be told, shame the devil, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. I'm learning all these. Uh, Truth be told, shame the devil. Or, or kiss a monkey on the. Yeah, I'm, yeah, learning, yeah. I'm learning all these. Uh, <laughs> I'm learning all these terms right now. I'm glad to know because I was. It's funny. I was in watching that series. I was like, so it's always been sunshine and roses with Mr. Gordy and the Temptations. That just is, was an odd. Well, you know, for Mr. Gordy and, and us, yeah, we've we've pretty much always have had a wonderful. Uh, you know, relationship, even today. And even in that part where, you know, you and they introduce Shelly, it's an interesting practice back then that I don't think, I guess it's not as practice now in the music industry where he introduced you guys to your manager, right? Mm-hmm. Back then. Right, back then. You know, when... see, at the beginning, uh, Esther Gordy, Barry's oldest sister, was our manager. Mm. But I felt, wow. that, I guess he felt, yeah. <laughs> he was all up in. Who, uh, Barry? Mr. Gordy, yeah. Oh, you tell my family, yeah. He yeah. Said, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I guess he felt as though he needed somebody that could get us on the Ed Sullivan show and uh, expose us to uh, the, the big home. Yeah. Okay. Because he got us away from ABC Records and uh, we signed with uh, uh, William Morris. And that was a big bohar around behind us leaving ABC because uh, Shelly had to. Well, like I say, it was some things that went down that I won't go into too deep, but I've had a very interesting career. <laughs> you see a little. But yeah. you, you guys returned in 80 with uh, the mm-hmm. Power, power. Record, right? Yeah. Right. And he, so he, uh, he uh, Barry Gordy produced that himself or? Yes, he did. Okay. B- Barry sat on Power uh, because we were at Atlantic mm-hmm. and Elton DeBarge, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, the DeBarge was still there. And uh, he said, I knew you guys was coming back. I said, really, Barry? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I knew you, you, it was just a matter of time. He said, I had worked on this song, Power. He said, but I did not have a group over here that could pull it off like I knew the Tenth would. Because he, he loved Melvin's power up on that bass. Mm-hmm. He loved Melvin's bass. So that was before Pro Tools, so to do yeah. that seven minutes in a row, man. That's right. You're right. <laughs> did he, okay, how many takes did that do? Like, was that a lot of cutting and pasting, or he just just straight straight seven. through? Wow. wow, straight through. That's hard, dude. Yeah, dude. Yeah, <laughs> he got behind that mic, closed his eyes, and he would ball his fist. 
and he was there, mm. just like a metronome, right, in their pocket. And uh, Barry said, I knew you guys were coming back, and uh, we did power 200,000 immediately, right out the gate. Mm-hmm. It was a riot down in Florida. The stations across the com- uh, country got off of it because they didn't want the lyrics that was so uh, powerful in power. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want to incense it to go any further. And uh, we were hard, you know, broken because the record was moving. It was going, but that incident down in Florida made made the disc jockeys back up off of it because, uh, it, you know, it was tenuous times even at that time. So was it <clears throat> your idea, uh, I guess, in 82, and I guess to commemorate the... By that point, I don't know if it was 20 years or or 30. I don't know how long. When did you guys, you guys officially started in 60 or 62? What, uh, Motown? Yeah. 61. I okay. Signed, I have a contract in my home that my mother signed. Okay, 61. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so 82 when the reunion album happens, that's to commemorate the mm-hmm. 20th. Um, whose idea was it to, well, to the, broker the... the uh, uh, our fan base. I have a, a saying that I have since uh, and been saying quite often. A few people around me say, Otis, I see what you mean when you say, the world loves us, but we did not love ourselves. We would let matter what shouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Drugs. I mean, I'm just saying it the way it is. Yeah. Drugs. So it was. the reunion was sort of bittersweet. Yeah. When, if Did you guys I, tour behind that record, or was yeah, it just yeah, yeah uh, uh, standing on the top? Yeah, we were touring. Our first date uh, was in Detroit, Michigan, at the Fisher Theater. David Ruffin came and uh, he said, "Otis, I promise you, I won't be doing all that crazy shit that I was doing before. I just want to get back in the group. I promise you, I'm, I'm straight. I ain't gonna. Because for the I was the last man to hold out. Because Melvin was saying." Come on, bro, let's do this here. You know, the fans want to say You were the last old day. I felt like it was your idea, like, let's bring them back in. No, because I knew what they were doing, even when I had my my own set of temptations. Okay. You know, because I would see Eddie from time to time. And Paul, he was already gone yeah. because Paul had passed, uh, what, 70, 71, that about. Yeah. But I knew what David was doing. I knew what Eddie was doing. And, you know, and I, I'm not sitting here denigrating these guys because I love them still. But, you know, like I said, tell the truth, shame the devil. So even Kenny Gamble, we went to Philly, and Kenny has always wanted to produce the Timbs. And uh, Jimmy Bishop was the spearhead of trying to get it together. But I guess for whatever reason, Jimmy Bishop bowed out. Wow, Jimmy Bishop. That's like legendary name in, uh, That's right. in Philadelphia. That's right. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, uh Anyway, we uh, persevered, and uh, I said, all right, Melvin, let's do this. So we got together, and we started rehearsing, and we got a very good show together. First day, well, we broke it in down in uh, a place in Texas. To, you know, the, the customary thing for us, go off and break the act in off the beaten path, so when we get on the shown off high, high visible road, we'd be tight. Mm-hmm. So when we got, got to Detroit... Uh, Fisher Theater. People wrapped around the building. Uh, and like I said, I'm not trying to denigrate anybody, but the time we got there, roughing was roughing. Yeah. Do you think that was a, a fear of his? Like, what do you? What? What's your assessment of? 
not being able to let those demon go, demons go. I've at least in my particular field, I know that cats that that uh all they have to do is just step up to the plate and do what they got to do and but he and had a crazy upbringing to. too though. He's David. right? David had a crazy upbringing. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of But I I always just wondered like him not being able to get it together. I mean, obviously that stems from a fear. I don't know if that's survivor's guilt. I don't know if that's, you know, like. Well, of course, you know how it is. Everybody can't handle success. Success can be a strong uh, aphrodisiac, you know, and it's all, I mean, on the real side, there have been so many different parties for us throughout our career that uh, we were in Detroit and I had to go off to myself and pinch myself. So I don't believe this here shit is really happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, all kind of doors was opening up to us. I mean, all kind of adulation, you know, women, you know, all kind of things, you know, mm-hmm. that if you're not strong from within, oh, yeah, it can bug you out, you know. So, but uh, we all handle success differently. But you also, you always, you mentioned, like, your mom signed your first contract. Like, right. you had a foundation. Yeah. And I know briefly in the series, they mentioned, like, David, he said he was, like, raised by a pimp. And, like, he, was. he had yeah. all, yeah. so in that foundation. And a lot of y'all had some good, like, even Melvin, you could yeah. tell, had, like, the yeah. foundation his mother was yeah. involved. Mama Rose. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but Ruffin did, uh, he have, had a very sordid life, you know, in the sense of, uh, yeah. The, uh, little, they called him at first Little David Bush. Mm. Oh, yeah, because he was uh, living with this guy named uh, Eddie Bush. Mm. And so uh, he took David under his arm wings and called him Little David Bush. And David had about six or seven singles before uh, he joined the Thames. And uh, I would see him at various record hops, and the brother was a cold piece of work, though. I mean, in a good sense. I okay. mean, David Ruffin threw that microphone up, spin around, dropped to his knees, and as the microphone came, was coming down, he'd grab it and go on into his act. So one day he said, oh, this, I want to sing with your group. And I was surprised because I said, wait, wait, say, back that train up. Say it again. <laughs> and he said, I want to sing with your group. I said, boy, if you were to join us, we'd really be something else. And he knew that we had a very strong reputation in Detroit as far as a group and doing what we do. And uh, so he joined the group in 19, well, 63 when he started hanging with us. So it was six you know, at the time, because of Eddie, Paul, Melvin, uh, David, and, and, no, Al, and then David. And we used to close the show with Shout. And uh, we're at this place called Chaffee's Lounge. And as we closed, they kept calling for us to come back. So we went back two more times. And the third time, uh, they kept calling, and uh, Al said, man, we've got to go back. They keep calling us. So Paul said, man, what are we going to do? We can't keep going back to closing with shout. We've done it two times. You know, we got to let it go. Al was drinking. And uh, when Paul said, no, we can't go back, mm-hmm. Al said, MF, I'll hit you with this bottle. Right. That was and, real. And I was the only one that could, could listen, that Al would listen to. I was just a little bit off time because when I, I could read Al's eyes, his ass, eyes would get the, mm, that mm-hmm. kind of focused thing. I said, up and by the time I tried to grab his arm, right across Paul's nose. I came out the club and leaned up against the door, came out of the dressing room, leaned up against the door, and Eddie, Melvin, and Davis, man, what's wrong, what's wrong? And they saw the look that I had on my face. I said, Al just opened up Paul's face with a big bottle. 
but check this out. Took Paul to the hospital. I said, Al, we're going to have to let Al go. I mean, Paul, we're going to have to let Al go. And no, Otis, no, don't, don't do that. I feel we got, we getting ready to make it. So I'm not going to have that kind of fighting. I said, I, we can have disagreements, but I just thought his eyes was gone because he hit him until the day Paul died. He had a scar right across the bridge of his nose. Mm. So we were at the Fox. And, you know, like I said, Paul was the one that started us to be noted for our choreography. So Paul and Melvin did this in a movie where they would jump down and do the seal. The place at the Fox went crazy. So I said, hey, Al, come on, man, let's get a piece of the action. Al said, no, no, we're going to stay back here. We the pretty boys. And that's when I said, got to let him go. Yep. Got to let him go. And when he came off, I said, you got to go, man. Enter David Ruffin. And that's the... How the temps, you know, the noted temps became uh, what we are. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Was there any interaction with uh, ex-members while they were on their solo tenures, like, did you guys feel like a certain way about keep on trucking or or any of David Ruffin's stuff in the solo period or even? Well, I was happy to see that David and Eddie were able to still do, you know, because very talented guys. Mm-hmm. Now, My Whole World Ended, that was originally written for the Timbs. Okay. But Norman Whitfield, not Norman, uh, Harvey Fuqua and Johnny Bristol, they could never get it to us okay. because Norman Whitfield was a string of hits, string of hits. So when David left, they put it on David, 
and that's the originals that's doing the background on My Whole World Ending. And, um, well, Eddie, you know, I knew Eddie would always be successful because he was such a unique uh, talent singing-wise. So Frank Wilson, when he did uh, Keep On Trucking and Boogie Down, you know, Eddie was very, very uh, success- successful. Who, in, in your career, as far as production is concerned, you guys worked with everyone from... Uh, the corporation to mm-hmm. Norm Whitfield to Rick James, Rick James, <laughs> Al McKay, yeah, Brooklyn yeah. and Fire, and all his cats. Even uh, what Benny Medina even worked on the reunion record. Yeah. I've yeah. never yeah. seen his name there. Uh-huh. Who? What is your what is your preferred? Not effective as far as who brought us the most hits, but who who was your favorite uh, producer to work with? As far as like who really understood the group, who was pleasant to work with? Oh, and, I, I would have to say Smokey first. Okay. Smokey being a group singer, Smokey was always organized when he would bring us uh, whatever song, the way you do the things you do, my girl, since I lost my baby. Uh, he left the background harmonies up to us. He would show us the, the basic part of the song. But Smokey was always organized, easy to, uh, you know, work for, record. Because when we did My Girl, uh, how that came about, he came and saw us at the 20 Grand, a noted uh, club in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the show, he came back and he was marveling on how great we were. And he looked at us and then he looked at David. He said, I have a song for you. And so us being young, dumb, full of you know what. <laughs> uh, we said, man, bring it on. We can sing anything. And we came here to the Apollo. And we, uh, smoking them, uh, headline, we were co-stars and field access on that. So in between the shows, we would uh, rehearse with Smokey and uh, went back to Detroit after rehearsing with him for My Girl. And he put the background and the leads on. And when Paul Reiser came and added the strings and horns, Mm -hmm. Smokey was sitting at the console, you know, working the the boys. And uh, I said, Smokey, I don't know how big a record this is going to become, but I think we got one on our hands. The record was recorded that fall of 64. They released it December 28th, uh, 1964. We were at the Apollo, February 1965. Barry sent us a telegram congratulating us as number one, sold over a million records. The Beatles sent us a telegram congratulating us, and I still have those uh, telegrams at home now. But I always think back that I said I knew this song was going to be something. I knew the song was good at the you know with the essence of us. But when Paul Reiser added the strings and the horns, it gave it a whole another daylight. And true enough, when we do that song today, it's like people growing up out of the ground like trees. They just started standing up. And we made the mistake like years ago. Record did what it was going to do, so Paul was in charge of the rundown. He said, well, we can take my girl out. It did what it's going to do. So we took it out. We did the show. Mm-hmm. Quest, y'all, <laughs> they call us every name except the child of God. <laughs> <laughs> doing that. So, so we will, that is, I tell the guys even today, I said, there are some, certain songs we can never, ever mm-hmm. take out. My girl, uh, just my imagination, ain't too proud to be, can't get next to you. Uh, Papa was a Rolling Stone, losing you. Uh, now treat her like a lady. So, like, we have a new record out now, album out now. And so I, I'm tasked with, how in the hell are we going <laughs> to do this anything, year? Because right. we only have a, a lot gonna be of like a four time. hour. It's going to be a four-hour uh, show. Yeah, man. And <laughs> yeah, so, how long is the average Temptation show? Because hour and a half. To pack all this, yeah. hour and a half. I mean, that's 
with with banter in between and non medleys, just one I, hook, right? No, like just go to one hook and then go to the next song. Well, we got <laughs> <laughs> y'all remember this? Y'all remember this? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, we work it our way. We well, like, ain't too proud. We do all of ain't too proud. Of, we do all of uh, my girl the way you do. Uh, fortunately, you know, we try not to never cheat our, our fans because they paid their money to see a show. So, right. but uh, yeah, you know, uh, hour and a half, uh, you know, we try and insert as much as we can so they can say, "Boy, Jim's still jumping around." You know, after all these years, which that's what they're saying now because we just did a big show in. Uh, outside of Maryland, and it was packed, and I have been getting calls by men. And the most amazing thing, he said, but the CO is still up there keeping up with the rest of them. I said, I'm not keeping up with them. They, they keep up, up with, with me. You, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what do you say to, like, the young artists who, you know, there are some artists who maybe two albums <clears throat> in that are tired of doing their song that was the big Quit. hit. The- <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you have fans that's, then their hard-earned money to come see you, mm-hmm. and you're going to tell I'm tired, oh, we don't want to do that, uh, then you should leave it alone. I want to do all my new stuff. But, I don't, why, no, okay. they, they should leave the bit, get okay. out the business. That's what we think, too, when we're in the audience, but you know. <laughs> see, yeah, well, I'm an artist, and I tell them, that's the attitude you, uh, you have, get out of the business. Yeah. People uh, spend their hard-earned money to see these songs, and you don't want to do them because you're tired. Tired of doing them. Yeah. Yeah. I want to use the N-word of please. (laughs) (laughs) How how, uh, of the groups that you guys have inspired, especially the 70s onslaught of groups, everyone from Blue Magic to... Boys to Men. Dynamics is periods. Uh, Well, I was just thinking in the 70s, but I mean, even, even, well, I mean... New edition, yeah. Well, yeah, just... Insane. At least, least, no, 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 hang on, hang on. (laughs) No, because the thing is, is that I feel like when it's 20 years down the line and it's someone young, then you're more willing to accept, like, yeah, I influenced them. Oh, okay, I get where you're going. But how did you guys feel, like, with the onslaught of all the 70s groups that are based on you guys? And I mean, like, all those groups. The Choice Four, yeah. the... the Enchantments. And- yeah, Enchantment, like, just all yeah. those groups that have the same breakdown. The falsetto guy, yeah, right, and the right. baritone guy. And the- did you guys feel a certain way? Or... Well, you know, of course, we took it as a compliment, you know, and when you sit, I mean, I tell you, all the way today, when I watched Bruno Mars, when he had, he did the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. I saw three important elements in his show. James Brown, Michael Jackson, and The Temptation. Now, he's here in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So our influence reach from now all the way back then runs the gamut. And whenever I see somebody that's doing us, mm-hmm. I say, okay, I, I like them because the temps has influenced them. You know, so you can't do nothing but take it as a, uh, a compliment. You guys covered Bruno on the new record, right? Uh, yeah, we did one of his songs. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yep. Remember the Time, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Remember the Time. I tell you, when I got the list and they said, oh, just pick out what you want uh, to do for the new album. Uh, Mike had invited me down to the studio when he was recording Remember the Time, and him and I were in the, uh, his uh, trailer talking, you know, and uh, when they said, Mike, we're ready for you, but him and I were sitting in his trailer talking about days of yo, because uh, I can tell you what brought back to mind, because we were talking about we were in Chicago when uh, Jesse Jackson had uh, Operation, Operation Push. Push. Yeah, and they had the 10 of us on stage. So uh, when I guess the girls said, uh-oh, they're getting ready to come off stage, all these women and girls <laughs> start coming to get on the stage. So one of the security guys said, 
what are we going to do to protect these guys? There's 10 of them. Somebody said, get a U-Haul truck. They got a U-Haul truck. They put the 10 of us in there with security. And uh, it was pitch black in there. But Mike said, where's Otis? Where's Otis? And somebody cut the light on inside the truck. And I said, Mike, Mike, I'm right here. I never will forget the look that he had in his eyes of love. Now, mind you, he didn't ask about his brothers. Mm -hmm. He didn't ask about the other Tims. Where's Otis? And, uh, and I said, I'm right here, Mike, I'm right here. And he looked up and he had the damnedest little I love you look in his eyes. So, But I was there at the uh, uh, taping of Remember the Time. So when I saw that, I said, oh, no, we got to do Remember the Time because it gave me that kind of remembrance. That's so cool. Um, in, your, in your entire catalog, mm -hmm. if you could just, what, what to you is your three personal quintessential favorites? In, in the Temptations catalog. Right out the gate, my girl. So even though you performed it every day of your yes. life. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's you. That, that one. Uh, I had to sing Too Proud to Beg because Norman brought that track mm -hmm. to my house because we all lived in Detroit. And uh, I said, man, the track is, ooh, you know, so uh, Ain't Too Proud would be the second one. You know, I'm a big Temptation fan. I could go a lot longer than three, but... Uh, you could only pick three. Just my imagination. Okay, what uh, Okay. What one under-the-radar song that... I was going to ask that, yeah. ...never really made it, like an, an, a, a favorite of yours that didn't make it? Like one you think that deserves a second look that didn't get a shot the first time? Now, this is one I, uh, I really enjoy listening at, and it was a guy that worked at Motown named Steve McKeever. Yeah. You know, Steve? Hidden Beach. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He used to work at Motown? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. He said, Otis, that elevate eyes. I said, really? I said, I've always liked it. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> See, I hear elevated eyes. That's a whole yeah. I work at 30 Rock. That's HR. Huh. That's HR. We ain't allowed to have yeah. We get sent to the principal <laughs> office for elevator eyes. Oh, yeah. Well, young lady, <laughs> she's since passed. Uh, she was a forensic psychologist and her and I were talking and she said, Otis, have you ever heard of the term elevate eyes? I said, hell no, I ain't never heard of that. And she said, well, if you are working in the blue collar field and a young lady walked by and you'd be to my, damn baby, you show, oh yeah, excuse me, and, and go and continue working, mm -hmm. she can go to the human resources. HR. Do, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Lose your job. Wow. Oh, I so said, we're, we're not alone. Uh, I no, thought there was something that no. we just made up in 30 Rock. But what made me really say, oh, okay, you're not the only one. Uh, Oprah had a forensic psychologist on her show and asked her the same thing. She said, no, I've never, I said, well, I don't feel like boo boo the fool and if Oprah ain't heard her, <laughs> you know, and uh, I said, you know what, Kathy, I'm going to write a song called Elevate Eyes. And a uh, young lady wrote me, texted me, and she said, Otis, you need to do something with that Elevate Eyes. So that would be one that I really, and it would kind of be apropos with what's happening with the Me Too thing because this song tells about how you really should, you know, you can see a young lady, but you don't trespass. You just let her know that she looks nice and mm, what have you. You're peripheral. Yeah, uh-huh, but, you know, you have to watch that. But that one, uh, I told her <laughs> I'm going to still work that out and find somebody to do it because the lyrics and the track, you know, it's tight. Now's the time. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. I see. <clears throat> My last question. How come you didn't uh, sing more 
you know what? Prominently on the lead. Uh, Quest, you're on point because I was the lead singer at uh, when we were the distance. Okay. Because uh, uh, Billy, my uh, valet, he went on the internet and found uh, "Open Your Heart" and what else did it? It was another song that I did. But my thinking was when we got to Motown, and uh, you know, because it wasn't like. Uh, I couldn't sing lead on it. I just say, hey, man, I don't give a care who is singing as long as we make this money. And it wasn't like, oh, wait, wait, bro, you getting paid more because you sing lead? Oh, hell no. I want to sing lead. So it wasn't that kind of thing. Oh, everybody got the same. I was wondering about that. No, no. Excuse me. No, no. Everybody got the same pay. But then that's weird, Otis, because since you were a founding member and then so Melvin, so, but regardless, if it's a new guy, whatever, we all the same. Yeah, yeah that's where it was at, at wow. back then. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but Tom Bell, we did an a album with Tom Bell and he recorded us and I was just humming something. And Tom stopped. He said, you the one I should be recording. I said, really? Why you said it? He said, I like your voice. I said, oops. <laughs> you know, too late, you know. And we had, you know finished recording, but my attitude has always been like, "Hey, man, I just want us to make it." And, you know, my ego didn't get hung up on the thing. Well, I got the same lead. I'm the group leader. I found this stuff. You know, no, it wasn't that with me. It just let us all make money and be successful, and uh, that's it. You know, but uh, I guess I never did really make any real bones about it. Just. Did you make both? What about the the writing process? Because you said earlier on you wrote some songs for the sure. Temptations, but did it continue on? Because it sounds like I'm still writing. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, on our latest album, um, Temptations uh, All the Time, I did uh, along with two other guys, uh, Waiting on You, mm-hmm. uh, Elevator Eyes, mm-hmm. um, Treat Her Like a Lady. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, no, I, I love writing when I can, you know, get a chance to do it. So yeah, that's my other thing of doing it. Well. I know you have a uh, another three hundred years in you, so I love you, Quest. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna ride the hell off the horse. When I get off the horse, it'll be ball. <laughs> and that's how we have to end it. Yo, thank you very much, Otis you. Williams, for coming on Quest Love Supreme. Oh, no, yes. thank, you. thank you, thank you. On behalf of Boss Bill, Sugar Steve, What's Aia, Fontiglo, and I'm Pay Bill. This is Quest Love of Quest Love Supreme. We will see you on the next go round. Thank you. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.